Hello, I am Katerina Sliva. I am a partner at Dentons in the Real Estate Group. I am also the head of our Land Use Planning, Municipal and Development Law Group. I help our developer and landowner clients secure zoning and other development approvals for their projects. I am the lead of our Canada Smart Cities Think Tank. I am also your host for the Smart Cities Chat Podcast Series, brought to you by Dentons. This podcast series covers a broad range of topics within the Smart Cities space. Everything from drones, communication, 5G, privacy and related issues, P3s, transportation and smart mobility, sustainable, smart communities, and much, much more. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There you can access our episodes as well as an episode description for each topic and information on our speakers. And now over to our podcast. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Denton's Smart Cities podcast. My name is Amr Paslik, and I'm a partner in the litigation and dispute resolution group in Toronto. I'm also the co-editor of the Canadian chapter of the Denton's Global Guide to Autonomous Vehicles. I am very pleased to have with us today William Mueller. William is the Vice President of Business Development at Soul Robotics, where he works with external clients to effectively utilize the company's proprietary 3D perception software for numerous business functions. Since joining the company in 2020, William has grown its strategic partnerships across a range of industries, including smart cities, hospitality, transportation, and retail. As VP of Business Development at Soul Robotics, William brings deep, practical, and technical knowledge for implementing smart city technology solutions, working with partners like the City of Chattanooga to drive adoption of high-impact ITS solutions. Before Soul Robotics, William supported business development for Septon and Quenergy, leading Quenergy's expansion into the security industry. And prior to that, William spent over 15 years working in security, including extensive experience installing wireless infrastructure and security systems globally and bringing new technology solutions to market. Welcome, William. We are tremendously excited to have you on our podcast today. Yes, thank you very much for for having me and uh, looking forward to a, a fruitful conversation. Excellent. Well, William, why don't we start off um, by you telling us what is Soul Robotics and perhaps you can give us a general overview of what the company does. Yes, absolutely. So Soul Robotics um, was founded in 2017. Um, We sort of came to be from uh, uh, an actual uh, challenge that took place, uh, specifically the Udacity challenge. And um, the company was founded and started by uh, three members, four members actually stand to be corrected. And um, they try to push the limits of taking 3D data perception as far as they could for uh, autonomous applications. So the goal was to purely use, at that point, 3D LiDAR data and um, see what the outcomes and what the results would look like from using that data only. Um, Fast forward to today, 
that uh, formed the company Soul Robotics, where we are. And um, they figured that that technology could go beyond those use cases. Um, obviously, at that time, the hype, the trend, everything was around autonomous vehicles, sensors for vehicles, where that was going to be, where that was heading towards in, in the autonomous world. But it had, it had to go through its cycles, had to go through its time and, and, and so forth. But what we quickly realized as an organization is that there is a lot of other vertical or use cases that could leverage the capabilities of these deeper insights um, through 3D perception. And um, what that allowed us to, to kind of focus on as a company was to say, okay, let's look at real world problems, real world use cases. What could we solve with the technology? And found a, found a home for this technology to uh, make change to, to society, improve, improve, li improve life and, and, and so on. And Soul Robotics from a commercial point of view became what it is today. So it's been about a two and a half year process um, from its infancy doing pilots and POCs trying to find, figure out what was going to work best for the technology. And we found it's found its place in, in the world of smart cities and, uh, and from there also into intelligent transportation and so on. So we were born for software for autonomous vehicles, took that same advanced technology, deep learning, 3D computer vision software, and have transitioned it through the phases to become an infrastructure-based perception technology. So what that allows you to do is, is, is start seeing the world from the full picture. Um, and that's where we sit as, as a technology offering. Um, smart cities, ITS, uh, smart spaces, um, some industrial applications, and then we still have some efforts going on in the autonomous vehicle software space. That's excellent. Uh, and what a rapid evolution in a relatively short time frame for a company. Um, it's quite impressive. It's been a ride, that's for sure. Um, I think what has been the most exciting thing about it is that we found ourselves transitioning very fast from the POC phase or a conceptual idea to becoming real world deployments with uh, scalability. Uh, normally you find yourself stuck at a point for, for, and for some time, just kind of, uh, you know, treading water in a way, trying to get the technology out there, trying to get the uh, uh, industry to recognize what it could do for them and what value it could bring. And, and it just found its place naturally in the smart city uh, world. And, um, you know, I think the whole, trained in, in, in today's world is, you know, the IoT, making that infrastructure useful to society as a whole from both uh, way of living um, to the way we move through those cities, the way we behave in those cities to, you know, making them safer, smarter, and obviously, you know, greener um, uh, for, for, for the generation now and generations to come. Um. William, you mentioned um, you know, the benefit of real-world application and real-world use cases uh, for the technology today. I'm curious as to 
um, your views as to how that plays a part in uh, public-private collaborations um, in smart cities and whether or not uh, you think that's an important aspect to, to the business? So from a collaborative point of view, I think there is actually, we realized there's, there's obviously the public sector, private sector, and actually what we've also realized is academia uh, brings a lot of value to this. Um, we found that a lot of universities are also doing a lot of research programs and students are, are uh, investigating the potential of technology and helping the, the public sector understand and embrace these emerging technologies. So it's it's very interesting relationship that the private sector brings technology, brings concepts, brings idea, and then finding the private sector from a resource and a capability point of view or leveraging partnerships with local universities or, or higher ac academic uh, institutes to research and understand the impact that this technology is bringing to their city and, and the difference it's going to make. So it, it's, it's a recipe that kind of naturally evolved um, and actually makes a lot of sense because a lot of legacy technology goes through, I would say, generational changes. So as you might go with one generation of technology, it might have been implemented or, or conceptualized from at that stage an acad academic level, deployed, run its cycle or its life cycle through systems. And then it sort of awaits for the next generation of research and understanding and, and seeing what those challenges of, of today bring and the evolution of the next generation of technology uh, comes to be. And it's it sort of, if you his, his, historically look sort of back at trends, it, it seems to follow the same pattern. So in our mind, we, we found ourselves working very closely with the academia institutes, which doesn't initially seem to make a lot of, uh, from a business point of view, a lot of financial sense. However, from a real world understanding and a path to getting it mainstream, it absolutely makes sense because I believe they're the resource engine that a lot of cities sometimes lack that is able to bring that opportunity in. And, and that's what's sort of made the, the CUIP Chattanooga uh, program uh, possible. And as we go sort of dive into that a little bit deeper further on, we will kind of, I'll sort of explain and roll out how that program uh, went from simply a, a simple discussion at a, an, an ITS World uh, Congress or meeting in DC to, becoming what it is today and how that cycle took, took its, uh, how it sort of rolled out over the years. Uh, William, I'd love for you to uh, elaborate on that project a little bit more. I think we, our audience members would love to hear um, how that, you know, moved from inception and an idea in DC to the actual rollout. And if you have any other sort of real life examples of these uh, public-private partnerships um, in your space, please please tell us more. Absolutely. So, so uh, I'll sort of fast forward a little bit and uh, fast forward the steps a little bit and um, trying to just uh, be mindful of some time. So essentially, 
the when when we met up with the the at that time the CYP team and uh, specifically uh, Mr. Austin Harris from uh, the from CYP, um, he came up to to a booth where I was exhibiting. I was working for Septon at that time, and we were sort of just loosely talking about technology and so on. And we kind of built a, a relationship over technology, and he sort of through this idea out there saying well we're trying to build this smart city we're trying to figure out what is possible with technology and um, we didn't know really what we wanted to do at that point we we just knew we wanted to try and make a difference trying to find uh, what technology could do them as as a, an organization at that point you know didn't have all the funding didn't have everything they needed to make things happen and and in a way they're trying to find partners that were patient towards that approach. Um, we kept talking, nothing really happened anytime soon. And, you know, fast forward a year or two on and I got a phone call and I said, well, I think we're ready. We want to try something. Uh, at that time I had uh, had had started up with, with uh, Soul Robotics and uh, I said, well, wait a minute. I think we've got something that could actually work here. We've got this uh, open uh, software architecture that's non-proprietary, completely sensor agnostic, allows a lot of different things to start working with it, and it can work with a lot of different things. How about we simply put this technology at, at uh, some of your, one or two of your intersections and um, see what the data looks like? And um, he said, yeah, sounds like a great idea. One challenge, um, like most cities, budgets, right? There wasn't really money for this they just really had the real estate to offer and said, well, look, we can offer you a giant sandbox play, figure out what this technology can do for you. Um, and we kind of go from that point onwards. So we got to that stage of, of putting in the system, found some collaborative partners. We, we, we actually at that point sponsored to some level, some of the technology put into place there. And within, I would say a matter of, four to five months, they quickly realized that the, the insights and the capability of the, the, the 3D data, which essentially created a digital twin of a typical intersection, uh, made, it, made a huge impact with regards to uh, pedestrian and vulnerable road user uh, insights. There, there seem to, there still seems, or there is a, a major problem with most smart cities today is understanding the insights and the movements and the behavior of what is considered the vulnerable road user. So that's the pedestrians, the cyclists, anybody essentially that's not in a vehicle. And a lot of technology, there are some technologies that have the capabilities of understanding some of those insights, but most of those technologies are uh, invasive technologies. So meaning that they are, are understanding biometrical data of the public. And this is obviously a problem, um, especially with the digital world today. You, you've, got to, you've got to have a really strict policy in place to manage that data, because obviously once you start recording people's uh, biometric data, understanding their ethnicity, their race, their gender, things become very complicated. We completely eliminated that problem with this technology. We just knew there was a classification type human people bikes uh, or people bikes and vehicles. And we knew exactly where they were within this digital twin environment, full 3D space. And that allowed them to understand data points of what is the uh, 
positioning of vulnerable road users. So, you know, where people are in intersection crossings, um, what is the potential statistics of near miss events when vehicles almost strike pedestrians? How is the behavior of people on, on, on bicycles or scooters? Um, how is the traffic interacting with that? And it was actually at that point, the, the, um, the city transportation manager, Mr. Kevin Comstock, that um, was a real, he's a real visionary for, for, for his time and, and obviously for that city and said, this is it. This is exactly what cities have been looking for. We, we have not been able to understand the positioning and the location of these vulnerable road users within cities, how, how we can make a change and be impactful in the changes we try and make and plan these cities better at that point. So fast forward another couple of years, um, or not another couple, about another year actually, and we put this whole plan together of saying, okay, we want to start thinking how we're going to roll out a corridor um, to now look at the entire journey of both vehicles um, the pedestrian, the vulnerable road user aspects, as well as bringing this whole big picture together of creating this digital city, essentially. And part of that program, there was involvement from the uh, University of, uh, of Tennessee. They had some students that were busy with their PhDs or, or their programs that got involved in the program as well. So they were doing some of their research thesis on there. We had the, the CUIP effort in there. We had the city influence in there. And then, of course, there was this whole process of, you know, figuring out how to apply for more funding and grants and so forth. And what this essentially allowed us to do this collaboration between it, academia, private sector, and 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 uh, governments essentially is we we identified the use case, the impact that this is going to make, and how it's going to change things. It got validation through the academia that this technology is really making a difference. The private sector brought the technology to place and it sort of gave the paved the way forward for for this um, whole concept of now making this corridor that with the vision of alleviating congestion and traffic issues, bringing safety to its visitors and to its residents that live there, um, considering impact impactful uh, movement of 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 uh, people that are with disabilities. Um, and while it's important is maybe take one step back is that the data itself being three-dimensional data and data that allows you to know the absolute location of objects in the full 3D space, you know where somebody is or an object is within the centimeters of accuracy. So, Right. Think of somebody that is walking through across a, a street. Um, you're actually able to know how fast they're crossing, where their actual location is within that street, and what their behavior looks like. So what that can result in you being able to dynamically potentially, or and CYP are trying to do this actually proactively, is say, okay, wait a minute. Let's not change the light green for the traffic. Let's allow these people enough time to continue passing because they're pushing a stroller or they might be on a wheelchair or you know they might be elderly crossing a little slower than the normal timing sets there. Or the complete flip side is, well, somebody pushed the button, but actually nobody's there. Nobody's crossing the road. Let's continue keeping the traffic moving, reducing the emissions and, and the uh, productivity of, of flow through the, uh, through the city. So those insights now become very intelligent at that point and start making a difference in, in a city of how it operates. And added to that, you're also going to start saying, well, 
hey, we can do simple things like understanding the quantity of people moving through these cities, the quantity of vehicles moving through these cities. Cyclists does this presents an opportunity to say, hey, why don't you bring your business to, to Chattanooga? We have X number, hundred thousands of people visiting our city this year. This specific corridor or this specific block has got the most uh, movement. Um, bring your business here. Um, things like that are, are all data points that will become, start becoming available to the cities and sort of build into the whole smart city application. So there's a, there was a lot of thoughts and, and directions and trying to figure out the plans of how to make this all uh, happen. But ultimately, we focused on what was the most impactful um, program in there. And that was really this, the, there's a, a program called Vision Zero. And, and that is a, uh, a government funded program to essentially do that, reduce fatalities of vulnerable road users to zero in the urban environment. So we believe that this is a technology that really enables us and allows us to take play, add this to happen from both understanding the historical insights as well as trying to prepare for more of a proactive approach of how to eliminate this um, without being coming an, an information overload because considering most crossing fatalities or pedestrian fatalities in cities is normally related to distractions. And normally the number one distraction is a mobile device or people got their ear earphones in and they don't hear or know what's going on around the surroundings. So it's potentially bringing in another layer of technology saying, well, you know, how do we visually stimulate people to, you know, not walk across the road because, hey, the, the green the green man's not lit up, um, things like that. So, so that's where we're starting to move into the next levels of bringing other technologies into the solutions to start making this happen. That's terrific. I mean, there is, uh, you know, one example of a very uh, real life application that is uh, that has the potential to save lives. Um, and that's 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 an, a terrific example of, um, you know, a public private collaboration that that has worked out very well. Right. Um, so good for you, <laughs> um, William, I guess to to conclude um can you share with us some of your key insights or or learning points from uh the public private collaborations generally speaking so i would say that the number one skill that the private sector has to manage and develop running programs like this is, is to exercise a lot of patience um, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of uh, planning, conversations, understanding what the challenges are, and allowing that to go through through its motions. Um, it isn't it isn't fast by any means. Um, and one other thing that is also very important is with emerging technology, you've got to consider, and cities have got to have to consider how does this technology get maintained and looked after in the long run? Um, a lot of cities have a, a, either a limitation or a, a lack of access to advanced um, uh, employees within their uh, uh, staff uh, complements. So what is interesting is that we're seeing, again, when you have the 
collaboration between academia and the cities and the private sector is it is basically creating opportunity for a next generation for employment purposes to come and get opportunity that is fulfilling as well as challenging in the private sector. And then so and then what happens is that that brings a skill into the city that's able to maintain the smart city technology, take care of the smart city technology, because obviously the private sector will help put it together and put it in place. But ultimately, somebody has to maintain this, this technology. So that is also very important to consider. Part of what's, what our strategy is, is that we empower that acad academic side to bring those skills into the cities and enable that transfer of capability into the city, as well as in the city itself is in a position to take care of this technology. But also what we try and be, be mindful of and try and help cities think about is that make sure your technology has an open openness to it. And the reason that is so important is because technology moves so fast and evolves so fast, you want to be in a position to always be bring in the best that's available to your city. And that is all part of that patience aspect, right? We, you don't want to just simply sell a box and say, this is the box, you're stuck with this box, you have to fit in this box, you have no other options. So that education is part of it as well, um, to bring into the city level and say, this is what's available to you. And many companies will take the approach and say, well, maybe it's not the best thing. You kind of want to have somebody um, not aware of what's out there, that they focus only on what is here in front of them. For us, it's more harmful because you want to allow that collaborative effort and that trust to build and for cities to be able to start communicating, working together and saying, well, if this is so, works so well in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, can we use the same recipe in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, as an example, you know, is this, is this repeatable? Is this continuing to be scalable? Um, and that's what we really try and do as an organ, as a company is to help that happen and empower that as much as we can. We might not win all the business and all the opportunities as a private sector. You know, that's our goal to try and become a, be a profitable company, but it's also important to ensure that you build a reputation that follows you, that you become trusted, that cities can rely on you to say, thinking what is the best for them and, and what can they achieve as a city looking looking past tomorrow, today and, and the years to come. Well, William, those were some terrific insights. So uh, thank you very much for that. Um, and thank you for your thoughts today and your time. Uh, it was a great conversation and uh, we look forward to future collaborations with you and Soul Robotics. Well, thank you very much. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take and refrain from taking action based on its contents. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Speakers from this podcast episode and any other professional in our group will be pleased to speak with you on today's topic or any other topic related to smart cities. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our Smart Cities Chat podcast series.